Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 80. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about Lumbee perspectives on environment, culture, and community. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nooch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Dr. Ryan Emanuel and Dr. Seth Grooms on the show. Dr. Ryan Emanuel is an Associate Professor of Hydrology in the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. He studies the movement and status of water in the environment, and he's also interested in historical and cultural aspects of water and watery places. Emanuel's work pays special attention to indigenous peoples' enduring relationships with rivers, wetlands, and other waterscapes in southeastern North America. He partners with tribal nations and indigenous communities to identify and address threats to culturally important waters that stem from pollution, climate change, and unsustainable development. Emmanuel holds a PhD in environmental sciences from the University of Virginia and is an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe. Welcome, Ryan. Happy to be here, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. And Dr. Seth Grooms is an anthropological archaeologist who works primarily in the eastern woodlands of North America. In the broadest sense, his research is focused on crafting archaeological narratives of Native histories that are, as much as possible, informed by Native American perspectives. He uses methods from geoarchaeology, landscape archaeology, and chronological modeling and interprets the resulting data within a theoretical framework comprised of traditional anthropological theory, as well as Native American philosophies and epistemologies developed by contemporary Native intellectuals. Dr. Groom's latest work is in the Southeast, specifically Mississippi and Louisiana, where he examines the role of landscape modification, such as mound building, in the poverty point phenomenon. Seth is an enrolled member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. So welcome, Seth. Uh, thanks for having us, Jessica. It's uh, my pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to have both of you on at the same time. This might actually... Uh, Nothing else is coming to me. Be the first episode where we've had both somebody with an environmental sciences background and somebody with a cultural, you know, an anthropological background on the same episode. So I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, All I think right. they do well together. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm very excited to talk to both of you today. And let's get started. Just keep it simple with um, how did you get into this field? Yeah, I'm happy to start off. So Jessica, I had a very conventional earth science and environmental science background. Um, I studied geology as an undergraduate. I was attracted early on to hydrology, water science, and that's what I really wanted to pursue in graduate school. And so there are very few programs that actually offer hydrology degrees, or at least there were 20 years ago. So I enrolled in an interdisciplinary environmental sciences program at Virginia where I could focus on hydrology. And I did that for my master's, my PhD, and 
the first several years of my career, I focused primarily on natural sciences, specifically around the movement of water in natural environments. Maybe eight or 10 years ago, I began to move into issues around environmental justice and cultural resources, primarily in the context of NEPA reviews. And so that sent me down this path of thinking more about the cultural implications of water and the policies and actions that surround those cultural resources. So that's, that's what, what spurred the bifurcation in my work, and it's where I've landed today. Yeah. And I mean, for me as a, as a cultural anthropologist, it's like, well, obviously, you know, water ties into culture, but you know, a lot of people out there obviously don't, don't think about it that way. Right. You'd be, you'd be surprised. Hydrology is still taught in many contexts as a a purely physical science um, in the absence of human impacts or cultural impacts or things like this. Yeah. And I definitely want to get more into that later in this episode. Seth, what about you? How did you how did you get into this work? So I would say I was I've always been a, like a history buff. I, I was the kind of kid that probably liked documentaries a lot more than other kids my age. That kind of stuff I was always interested in. I also always enjoyed being outdoors, and so archaeology uh, was a natural fit in that kind of way as far as your work setting and your the subject of your work. But I, I didn't think too much of it as a career option, seriously, probably until uh, my early 20s. So I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps right out of high school and um, deployed overseas in 2008. And so I just I found myself outside uh, of the, the country in Iraq uh, as this just Lumbee kid who had never really left North Carolina and despite kind of all that, you know, chaos around that sort of chapter of my life, I just was really fascinated by the, uh, the history, you know, that I saw overseas. And so, you know, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I used my GI Bill uh, to put myself through undergrad. And it didn't take long, you know, after I got going at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte for my undergrad degree for me to realize that I wanted to become an archaeologist. And um. And then not long after that, for me to realize, you know, more specifically that I wanted to get those credentials so I could hopefully come back home one day and, uh, and help the tribe with their various, you know, heritage, cultural heritage initiatives. Uh, so I'd say that, you know, by the time you know, I was finishing up my undergrad, uh, I knew that I wanted to get my Ph.D. and that uh, I wanted to work with my tribe and, and other, you know, indigenous communities. OK, so. I have all these questions coming to my brain. But first, so Seth, why did you feel like you needed to get a PhD in order to do that? Like, what about that called to you? Well, I knew that, you know, obviously there are a lot of folks out there with master's degrees or bachelor's degrees doing a lot of great community engaged work in you know various capacities. So, you know, it's not like a PhD is, is a necessity for that, but um, I felt that it would give me the best shot to to um, be competitive, you know, uh, on the job market for being, you know, like a college professor and things like that uh, in anthropology. And I just I knew pretty early on that that was the, you know, that's what I needed to kind of punch my ticket and and have a chance at the kind of jobs where I felt like I could make an impact uh, teaching 
and also having, you know, university resources to conduct research uh, with, with, uh, with communities. So, yeah, I was just thinking about all the, all the students out there listening that, you know, maybe are navigating those decisions right now. So I thought I'd ask more details about why you went that way. So you had more of a, like, it seems like you, you went in and you were like, okay, I I see how this can have a direct impact on my community, um, working in, in archeology span and on heritage projects. Ryan, it, it seems like from what you were saying, that was a little bit more of a process to figure out um, what that could look like. So can you talk about what that looked like for you going from, like you said, you know, the straight hydrology that they were teaching to some of these more community engaged aspects? Yeah, absolutely. And Seth knows this already, but in the Lumbee community, as in many indigenous communities and and even some non-Indigenous communities, there's a strong message that young people hear during their upbringing that's go and get all the education you can so that you can come back and help your people. And so that was a message that I received as a young person. I didn't have any water science role models in the Lumbee community. We had lots of physicians, lots of attorneys, and we had lots of educators, but I didn't know any indigenous natural scientists at all. And it was only later in graduate school, maybe even during my early faculty career, when I began to find other native environmental scientists. And so I spent the first few years of my career trying to figure out how hydrology enables me to give back in the way that my elders told me that I needed to. And it took many different forms as an early career scientist. For several years, I was an ambassador for STEM education. I would come out and represent my university at college fairs. I would welcome high school groups from all over the Southeast who came to my institution and wanted to do college tours um, from various tribes, give them some perspective on what it was like being um, a native person on a predominantly white campus. Um, And so that was how I contributed to my community for many years. Over the course of those activities, which eventually evolved into things like environmental field days with high school students back home in the Lumbee community, I began to hear from students, from their teachers, and even from parents who came out to these activities about some of the pressing environmental issues that they faced on a day-to-day basis and, and the ways that those issues began to, to pull at the threads that, that tied them to this place that, that we've called home since time immemorial. And that's when I realized that if I was going to, to make an impact on things that had immediate concerns on people's lives, that, that I needed to broaden my lens a little bit and think more about the human and cultural dimensions of water. And around that same time, the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs invited me to join their newly formed Environmental Justice Committee as an ex officio member, uh, a technical expert. And through my work on that committee, I began to see these issues appear over and over again in tribal communities throughout North Carolina. And through that, that study and through that practice and through many conversations, I began to settle into a rhythm of um, partnering with 
the commission and partnering with individual tribal communities to think through some of these problems and some of the potential solutions. Okay, so can you give us an example of maybe one of them that that you felt like really, I don't know, was really successful or really stands out to you? Yeah, so around late 2016, early 2017, the federal government released a draft environmental impact statement for a very large interstate gas transmission pipeline to carry gas from fracking formations in the the central Appalachians down to urban areas on the eastern seaboard. And when the draft environmental review was released, the maps that were presented were jaw-dropping because the, the route of this pipeline cut with almost surgical precision through a number of tribal communities in Virginia, but especially in North Carolina. And when we looked at the demographics around the populations that were going to be impacted, the disparities of impacts to American Indian populations were just astronomical. You know, we make up about 1% of North Carolina's population, yet American Indians were set to be 13% of the people who would be directly impacted by this project. And so that information, those um, disparities were not disclosed in the federal government's environmental impact statement, but they could be readily computed from tables that, that have been provided in the vast appendices for this environmental review. And frankly, my skills as a hydrologist, as a quantitative scientist, allowed me to quickly eyeball those tables grab the important information that we needed and compute those disparities based on the population fractions that I that I just described to you. And once we had those disparities, we were able to make strong cases for enhanced tribal engagement in the decision-making process and for enhanced scrutiny of environmental justice implications because environmental justice is concerned with disparities in the distribution of harmful environmental impacts. And so that conversation and that data analysis led to a number of engagements in which uh, tribal leaders were able to submit comments, tribal Councils were able to draft resolutions, and you know these 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 were statements that were submitted into the record. In the end, they were part of a a large body of voices that spoke out against this project on a number of grounds. Everything from climate change implications to land conservation to um, endangered species and to environmental justice, and so it was one of the first times that tribes across the region had all stepped forward on the exact same issue with a similar message. And so that was part of the, the, the body of evidence that eventually persuaded the energy companies behind this project to pull the plug. And so it was a success from that perspective. But for me, I see it as a larger success because tribal governments were able to actually articulate what they expected from state and federal governments when it came to engaging them in the environmental decision-making process. And we now have this paper trail of clearly articulated 
expectations that we can point to and hopefully develop uh, lasting policies around, at least at the state level, before the next big project comes our way. Yeah, I mean, and the the coming together and showing that you're a force to be reckoned with, I'm sure, very powerful as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, well... We're right at our first break point, but when we come back, Seth, I want to talk about, you know, some of your work and, and what that looks like for you, your community engaged work. So let's, let's touch on that right when we come back. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, so we're back. So we heard from Ryan about some some really impactful work that he was working on in the Southeast on this EIS. And Seth, I want to check in with you. You know, you mentioned before that it was a pretty easy thing for you to see the connection of how to how to apply this work. Mm-hmm. Can you talk uh, a little bit about that journey for you and how how you have have tied in your work to your community as well? Sure. Yeah. Um, so what kind of led me to that work in the first place was that I, you know, the, the, the further along I got in my, uh, you know, like undergraduate studies, I, you know, you realize it's unavoidable. You realize that, uh, you know, in many cases, archaeologists have, you know, a kind of a rough reputation with, with many native folks. And so, and there, you know, to be clear, there are plenty of good reasons uh, for that that tension. Uh, what I thought, and I hope uh, that I do now, is I thought that I could join, you know, existing efforts to to move the discipline forward in that regard. To be clear, again, these these efforts, right, between archaeologists and just trying to be better partners with uh, with native communities, is is not new, right? So I just thought that I might, I might be able to be part of that. 
And, uh, and being native myself, I, I figured that I could help, you know, kind of mediate those conversations uh, with my work. You know, another thing to add is I haven't been at this very long, right? Like I just finished my PhD last December and I uh, just got to Appalachian State. But that's what I hope to do with my career. And, you know, more specifically with <clears throat> some of my current community engaged work uh, is mostly with our tribe, the Lumbee tribe. And uh, that work is just getting off the ground, like I mentioned now, I'm, I'm only in my second semester at App State, but I'm encouraged by how quickly uh, that work and those projects have picked up and the enthusiasm from the community and the, the tribal government. Uh, and so all of that is really encouraging. Yeah, right now, actually, as we speak, we're getting ready at App State. So my colleague, uh, Dr. Alice Wright, and I are, are preparing to take some App State students down to to uh, our land of, you know, Lumbee lands down in, uh, in and around Robinson County this weekend to do some of the first on the ground work with our TIPO office. And so that's really exciting. And uh, yeah, that stuff is, is seems to be kind of going forward full steam ahead. So uh, I hope that, you know, I have a long career in, you know, doing that kind of stuff, especially with my community. What kind of work are you going to be doing specifically with the TIPO? Uh, we're just doing some uh, non-invasive or, well, minimally invasive uh, survey work, archaeological survey work on one of the tribal properties where we, uh, it's our cultural center where a lot of our uh, events happen, powwows are held, that kind of thing. And um, so anyways, the TIPO, we're just going to be helping the TIPO give them some some labor and, and research specialties, you know, to help that process, surveying that. That property, you know, just walking it, looking at artifacts that might be on the surface. Uh, we're going to do some some geophysical survey, specifically magnetic susceptibility survey, which is essentially a non-invasive way to kind of get a, an idea uh, of potential things that are under the ground, archaeological features. And then we'll, we'll, the only sort of invasive part of the survey is we might be doing uh, a little bit of shovel testing. Um, that'll be very small scale and just sort of help what we call ground truth those geophysical survey results uh, just to sort of check and see it with our own eyes. Again, just limited disturbance. So yeah, that's that's kind of the stuff that we'll be doing this weekend. That's awesome. So, okay. I want to also give you the opportunity. I, I went a little out of order with all of that because I got excited, but I want to give you the chance to talk about your PhD work. And, you know, I know that obviously um, for most people, that's uh, a big project and really influences how they do all of their work and everything. So I wanted to give you a chance if you if you wanted to, to speak to what you did your PhD on and what you learned from that. Yeah. Uh, so my PhD work, uh, so I did my PhD at university or excuse me, Washington University in St. Louis, in St. Louis, Missouri. Most of my work or all of my dissertation work was focused down in the lower Mississippi Valley, like in modern day Louisiana and Mississippi. And so my research was based, my dissertation research was based on using a lot of different methods uh, and ways, you know, forms of analysis to understand the history of mound building uh, down there. Some of the, the oldest instances of mound building in North America between those two states where, yeah, where a lot of many of the oldest uh, earthen monuments are found. And so, um, yeah, researching that and um, what I tried to do was bring a more native perspectives to that sort of uh, that sort of narrative that I hope was a little different than typical uh, or you know traditional archaeological uh, interpretations and narratives just in the sense of trying to 
how would I describe it? I guess write, write more accessibly, less jargon and, um, just, uh, yeah, include more native perspectives on these, like these important, you know, cultural achievements of, of native people through the millennia. So yeah, that, that's my, that was my dissertation research in, in a nutshell. Yeah. And Ryan, I want to give you a chance to, to do the same thing, to talk about what kind of work do you do specifically within hydrology as well? I know that obviously we're, we're talking a lot about the community and environmental justice aspects, but I want you to give, to give you a chance to highlight, you know, the other work you do as well. Sure. I lead a lab group at Duke that has six or eight folks in it at any given time, postdocs, grad students, undergraduates. Um, and we have diverse interests that range from computer modeling of the movement of water through watersheds. One of the PhD students in my group is studying how projected climate change will impact stream flow in the Lumbee River Basin and how those changes in stream flow might impact the health of culturally important wetlands. So that's an example of the type of work we do. I work with folks who use satellite imagery to detect the die-off of coastal forests along the east coast of, of North America. There's a phenomenon that, that a lot of people have come to know as ghost forests, where sea level rise and saltwater intrusion um, are killing large swaths of forest land in low-lying areas along the coast. So we study the occurrence of those forests and what factors allow salt to move into those ecosystems. We do a lot of ground-based studies that involve measuring soil and atmospheric variables and trying to understand how that might impact the flow of water through the landscape. And then in recent years, unfortunately, because eastern North Carolina has experienced two catastrophic floods in the past six or eight years, my lab has pivoted into water quality mode where we collect flood water, groundwater, and other types of water samples. And we, we analyze them for potential contaminants. These could be contaminants from livestock operations or other kinds of industrial contaminants, even things like septic tanks. And um, we try to make sense of the patterns that we see in the data. What are the likely culprits? Where are the bright spots? Where do we have good water quality? And what are the factors that, that help us maintain good water quality here in eastern North Carolina? So in some respects, my group is all over the place, but you could say that we orbit around these questions that all of us have come to realize are extremely important to indigenous and non-indigenous communities in the region where we live and work. I mean, again, as a, as a cultural anthropologist, it's hard to, to understand somebody not understanding <laughs> that water is important to people. <laughs> But yeah, it sounds like you guys are, are touching on a, a wide range of, of really important topics that have direct impact on, on you know, like you said, both indigenous and non-indigenous communities. Yeah, I don't want to paint my hydrology colleagues as ignorant of human dimensions. You know, of course, yeah. we're, we're all motivated by the fact that water is critical 
to humans and to other life on Earth. And so I guess where my perspective has come to differ is thinking about the cultural importance of that water. So it's it's more than just a, a, a critical commodity. It also right. has this enduring importance to, to people around the world. And is that something that you've seen be talked about more in hydrology in recent years? Is that um, something that there's a growing awareness of or, or does it still need some work? There's a growing awareness. It always needs work, but I am encouraged by scholarship that, that has been coming out of not just hydrology communities, but also ecology communities. And we're, we are two closely allied fields where people are beginning to recognize these other dimensions of human relationships to water. And so that that's fun and encouraging. And it gives me hope that uh, the students of today um, are going to become uh, water and ecosystem professionals who have these kinds of connections at the top of mind when they think about the questions that are important. Okay, so for both of you, what have been some major like learning moments, aha moments that have happened throughout your career so far? Uh, yeah, sure. There, I think there have been plenty. Uh, <laughs> I feel like well, hopefully most people who stay in college as long as we've been <laughs> that you learn. The more you learn, I guess, the, the more you realize you, you don't know things. You don't know anything. So I feel like that's the longest list that I could give you is aha moments. But, <laughs> you know, I think one of the big ones as it relates to my community work, right, is uh, that I think I realized not long into my graduate education that I may have been a little naive as an undergrad when I was thinking about what it would be like pursuing this kind of work, like working with descendant uh, communities in the sense that, you know, like re- regardless of the fact that I'm a native person, you know, there are plenty of folks that just don't simply don't believe we should be digging or, or disturbing sites. And, and I, I understand those concerns and those opinions. And, you know, obviously all this is wrapped up with, like what we're dealing with this tangled mess of, of colonial, uh, you know, kind of ripple effects, right? In the sense that in archaeology, right, doing, you know, uh, tribes don't always own the land, maybe, you know, that the site might be on today, uh, whether that's because, you know, they were removed from their ancestral lands or, it, you know, the land was bought up around them over the centuries. But, Regardless, uh, just like any other archaeologist, uh, I learned that, you know, working with descendant communities and, you know, any community, it takes a, a lot of time and effort, right, to build that trust and build relationships. Uh, it takes a lot of goodwill and patience, right, a lot of humility. You know, I learned that, like I said, early on in grad school, and um, I'm still learning those those sorts of things, to be honest, you know, and I all I can do is I, I try my best to embody those things and just keep chopping at that tree and do the work and, uh, you know, just learn from mistakes I may make and uh, just keep at it and always just just stay genuine and, you know, kind and patient and just, you know, let it take you where it's going to take you with this sort of work. Yeah. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, thanks for that, Seth. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I feel like I'm a I'm a continual learner as well throughout my career. I would say, you know, one noteworthy moment in my work happened maybe 10 years ago. I got a small grant to study climate change impacts in the Lumbee community. 
And I was really excited about this project because your listeners may know that every few years, the federal government issues a report called the National Climate Assessment. And it's supposed to be an update on the status of climate change, climate impacts, and climate adaptation throughout the United States. And for the first three reports, I had noticed that there was a gaping hole in the Southeast when it came to discourse around tribal nations and indigenous people. So, I set off to, to try to plug that hole by thinking about climate change in the Lumbee community. And, you know, I went, went down to Robison with my, my virtual clipboard and re- ready, to, ready to suss this out. And you know, I got a few months into it and realized, oh my goodness, I'm doing the exact same thing that we're criticizing non-native or extractive um, scholars for doing in our communities. I came into the community with my preconceived set of questions that I wanted to ask and answer instead of instead of listening. And so that, that at that moment I realized that yes, climate change is a pressing issue and it is something that we absolutely have to talk about, study and come up with action plans to deal with, but at the same time it's absolutely important to shut up and listen and continue to build relationships. Even though I am a Lumbee person, I can't hang on that that one statement in order to, to maintain relationships in the community. And so a, a week or so ago, one of my, my colleagues at Dukes said something wonderful. She said that relationships are research. In other words, relationship building is a research product and we should value it as such. And so I would, I would say that I, I have come to adopt that as well. And so that's sort of been a, both an aha moment and a highlight of my work is the ability to think about research in terms of how am I building and maintaining good relationships with my Lumbee kin and with our neighbors. Well, on that note, we are already at our second break point, but we'll come back and we'll we'll keep talking about some highlights and, and where Ryan and Seth want to go with this and see in the future. We'll be right back. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. 
Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Okay. And so diving right back in, Seth, let's talk about, we already talked about one of Ryan's highlights of his efforts. Let's talk about a highlight of yours and maybe uh, what are some of the most you know, creative or, or effective outcomes that you've seen in your work? Sure. Yeah. So definitely one of the, one of the highlights uh, of my career so far was a project that I was involved in out in Montana with the Crow tribe. Um, that was a few years back. That was actually in like 2016. And I wasn't a PI. I was actually still an undergrad at that time. I was actually preparing for grad school, but the archeological team uh, was led by Dr. Ed Herman. Uh, he's at Indiana University uh, in Bloomington. And Rebecca Nathan, uh, she was the archaeologist at the time for the Crow Tippo. And Matthew Rowe, Dr. Matthew Rowe, he was uh, at the University of Arizona. And of course, I got to meet uh, a lot of great uh, Crow colleagues out there. I'd be remiss if I didn't give a sh- shout out to Sun Sun, Two Leggings, and John Bergenground, Logan White Clay, Anthony Wagner. There's a lot more that I don't have time to name here, but uh, I haven't spoken to those folks in a few years, but I hope they're doing well. But that that project was really special and it left a, a really big impression on me. And that was really because, you know, that effort was was led by the interest of the, you know, the tipo there and their interest around their ancestral bison hunting practices. I believe that interest from, you know, for the crow goes back to Joseph Medicine Crow, I think he kind of started those conversations, uh, at least from like a historical and archaeological uh, perspective about that that history of bison hunting out there. And so I never had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Medicine Crow before he passed away, but just being involved in that project, even in a small capacity, was an incredible experience. Yeah, the people we worked with and got to know is what made that special. And then, you know, the, my current work, like I've already mentioned with my tribe, uh, that work is you know, really special and personal to me, uh, obvious reasons. And so, yeah, I just feel really content and and happy and really fortunate to be able to do that work. And especially that my, you know, my community has entrusted me to, with that sort of partnership. Yeah. That's amazing. Sounds like a, yeah, a really incredible experience. So thinking about all of your experiences throughout your career for both of you, what would you offer like as three pieces of advice for people who are looking to, to work with, with tribes or descendant communities, trying to do more community-based work? What would you tell them? So advice that I would give people for this, doing this sort of work. I, I mentioned this a little bit before already, but I, th- I think it really is important, worth repeating, that you really have to enter these these partnerships with, uh, you know, goodwill and patience, like I said before, humility, it really is really important and letting those kind of values and that mindset guide your, your efforts. And, you know, that's true of, of any community, right? That's, I don't um, know if indigenous communities are, are necessarily unique in that way, but, um, you know, with American Indian communities and nations, right, it, it, that, that can be compounded sometimes because of that, you know, the fraught relationship or the fraught history, I should say, that's involved there sometimes. And so I mentioned earlier, too, you know, you may run into some opposition in the sense that people, some people, um, you know, in indigenous communities may not want sites disturbed. Right. And then others may, you know, support the work as a means to an end. And, you know, that that end being the documentation and preservation of uh, cultural heritage. 
So you need to be, I, I think you need to be open uh, to criticism sometimes uh, in that sense. But you, you, more importantly, I mean, you need to be able to talk, be able to talk through those things and find common ground. And um, yeah, again, I don't, native communities aren't unique in that regard, but that's true probably of any community. But that is one piece of advice I would uh, offer. And I would also, lastly, I would just advise, you know, scholars who want to do this work who haven't done it before to be really careful or mindful about getting too far ahead of yourself with uh, your research design, your, your grant writing, et cetera, because, you know, for, for that to be a true partnership, you need to be working with community members, you know, from the beginning of all that. So their perspectives and interests and their, their knowledge are uh, included in, in, you know, the entirety of the sort of the research process and not just the actual field work or, you know, anything that happens after that. And so that's what I, that, those, that's my two cents. Thanks for that, Seth. I want to I want to add on and first just echo what you said about humility and listening more than you talk. I think falls into that same category. I've had a number of people tell me through the years that research moves at the speed of relationship in communities, and relationship building is not something that can be rushed. And so what that means is. We have to cultivate ongoing relationships with indigenous peoples and other communities because moments of environmental and cultural crisis are are not the time to initiate relationship building. While that can happen, it's not an ideal time. And effective work can happen in those, those difficult moments if relationships are already established and there's already been a degree of trust building. I guess my other piece of advice, and I have to put this out there uh, because Seth and I both belong to a tribe whose recognition status is impacted by a termination era federal law that is still in effect today. Um, I just want to say that in the U.S., tribal recognition status is not a measure of indigeneity. Neither does it predict the degree to which Native people hold cultural connections to place. And so the advice that I would give to consultants, regulators, students, even to shippos and thippos who are experts in this area, is to look at resources like the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation's um, published guidance on working with non-federally recognized tribes and indigenous peoples because they affirm this message that recognition status doesn't prescribe the degree to which an indigenous community stands to experience cultural or environmental harm due to uh, development and uh, climate change and other practices. And sometimes we use that list of federally recognized tribes as, as shorthand for screening a region to figure out who we need to talk to. And, and we have a number of folks, especially in the Southeast, who, who are not on that list for a variety of reasons. And so frustration for me is to see my tribe and other tribes that I work with constantly left out of conversation because decision makers are only interested in doing the the minimum legal standard of section 106 consultations extremely important um, but we do have guidance to take a broader approach when it comes to tribal engagement and so that's the advice I'd like to offer 
This is the bad thing about a podcast. You guys can't see me like nodding my head the entire time. <laughs> you guys are talking like, yes. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, totally agree with everything that both of you just said. So I'm curious um, for both of you, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, hydrology or environmental sciences and anthropology and, you know, both fields or all of those fields having grown a lot in recent years in, in terms of working with living people, <laughs> especially yeah. like understanding the, the cultural components, like you both were saying. What direction would you like to see the fields that each of you work in go in the future? Uh, what would you like to see, you know, more of, less of, changed, et cetera? You know, obviously, I would I hope that the current, you know, trends that I see uh, in archaeology regarding, regarding, you know, many archaeologists working with, uh, you know, the great work they're doing with different Indian nations. I hope to see that continue. Um, and of course, you know, there's there's plenty of room, right, for growth and improvement in that work. But I, I think it's encouraging and I hope that that you know, trend continues. You know, the, I think the more we work together as far as, you know, archaeologists and indigenous communities, the more that work just becomes typical practice, you know, rather than some special subset of archaeology. And, you know, when that happens, that kind of best practice, it trickles down to our students and then, you know, so on and so forth um, to, you know, the point where our students today become that next generation of researchers. And I hope that in the future, you know, it just becomes common practice. It's just how you do archaeology rather than a special subset of community-based, you know, archaeology. You know, real quickly about things that I would like to see changed, I guess. Personally, I think the, the way grad school and, and archaeology, the way grad school and publication deadlines and, and grant writing are all structured right now, it, may, it can make, you know, genuine partnerships more difficult because of the time pressures involved kind of like at every level. You know, so like when you're working on your PhD, those timelines, they aren't really conducive to meaningful, you know, relationship building and engagement with communities. And of course, you know, there, there are exceptions to that. Some programs are doing that uh, really deliberately, but the typical grad school experience, I just think makes it tough sometimes to do community-based work. And so I think it's just a big part of that is you don't usually have the runway, right? Like the time uh, to develop those relationships and that trust. Same thing for grant writing deadlines and publication process, the way that that generally, you know, goes through review and stuff in those timelines. Just too often, I just think that those things aren't very conducive to co-producing, you know, knowledge with your community partners. So those are just some of like the, you know, big structural aspects of anthropology that I think and I, I think and hope can be improved in the future to sort of continue to facilitate more meaningful collaboration. And, um, you know, again, I want to stress that plenty, plenty of folks are doing great work within that structure already. But, you know, just generally speaking, I think that those kinds of things, the way they're currently, you know, constructed can interfere. Seth, I absolutely agree with you on the on these issues around timelines, uh, especially with the timelines associated with um, external grants. Right. Um, we see a lot of researchers just churning through communities still today. And a lot of that is driven by these externally imposed schedules, you know, funding agencies. These are such good questions. I see um, an opportunity that, that could be shared by the environmental sciences and the anthropology communities. I think this is a, a direction that, that, that both of our 
areas of scholarship and practice could be moving. And this is the growing awareness of indigenous data sovereignty and data governance. In other words, um, who owns the data that are being collected about indigenous peoples? What types of data are subject um, to, to this idea of indigenous peoples exerting governance over these data sets? Is it just limited to things like health data or cultural data? Or what about environmental data that are collected on tribal lands? And so uh, this emerging area of indigenous data governance, I see it uh, raises some really important questions. And we've got some great work by people at the Native Nations Institute at the University of Arizona who have developed a set of principles and uh, that, that, that should guide our decisions when it comes to data collection and management. Um, but I think this is extremely important because both of our fields collect data that can weigh in on indigenous peoples' relationships to place, their historical ties, and their their experiences with the environment in the present. And I firmly believe that indigenous people should have a right to own those types of data. And sometimes that can come into conflict with institutional missions or things like this. In the same way that we're having this national reckoning around um, repatriation of ancestral remains within universities and museums and other institutions, I, I think it's time for us to, to uh, have a similar reckoning over the types of data that we're collecting in our fields and in other fields. With all of that in mind, and on you know how you want to do this kind of work and how you'd like to see the field, like what direction you'd like to see the field go, what would you both like to like what work do you want to be doing in the future? Where do you want to go with with all of this? So, I mean, I, I hope to continue the work that I'm doing with my community and uh, just continue to develop a permanent partnership between the tribe and, and App State that, uh, you know, hopefully facilitates opportunities for the, the tribe to pursue their interest and train App State students, community-based learning train Mumbies and skills that maybe they can use to work for the TIPO uh, going forward. Just try to contribute to my community's cultural heritage, you know, management initiatives and uh, communicating that work to our community and the broader public. And uh, also on top of that, I hope to continue working with other uh, Native communities uh, as well whenever I can be of help to them. So one thing that, you know, is a kind of a uniting thread through my research is I just want to tell stories of, of Native histories in maybe a different way uh, compared to typical archaeological narratives of the past. And um, so in my teaching and my research, you know, I try to emphasize the incredibly rich histories and achievements of Native people here and educate our, our students and the public about the intellectual and, and cultural diversity of Native, of Native America, both, you know, in the past and the present, so that they go out, you know, into the world and remember these things, right, um, even if they don't necessarily go on to be anthropologists or researchers. I would just add, well, to be blunt, we need more scholars like Seth. We need Native scholars who are at the forefront of their academic fields, and they've gotten there while still centering their own cultural values and perspectives and not forgetting the communities that they come from and actively seeking out opportunities to engage 
build relationship and contribute to the well-being of those communities. Every time I go to Robinson County now, I get an update on what Seth and his students are doing or, or when they're coming down. And I was, I was just in Pembroke last night when our Thippo, I overheard a conversation between him and, and another tribal administrator. And, and I, heard, I heard that Seth and his students are coming down this weekend. And there's a lot of excitement about that. I'm really excited about that, too. So I'm really encouraged by the work that Seth is doing. And I think that we need more Native people coming through, you know, what are uh, admittedly colonial disciplines, but we're taking the tools and the skills that we need from those disciplines and we're bending and reshaping them back towards the, the well-being of the communities that we come from. And that's an important philosophy and mindset. And I'm really encouraged by what I've seen from Seth and other early career Native scholars so far. That's awesome. Thank you for the kind words, Ron. And I hope that, uh, I mean, your work, your scholarship has served as a role, uh, you know, uh, a model, right, for, for my work and my scholarship. And, and I try to remember those things, you know, as I go in and teach and conduct research in the classroom and the community every day that, you know, hopefully I can look back at some point and end up being a, a model in that sense for, you know, this generation of students as well. So thank you again, Ron. Yeah, absolutely. And Ryan, what what about you? What do you, what would you like to do moving forward? <laughs> I think what I have on my short term radar is just getting my 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 book out in the world. Yeah, so, so exciting! Yeah, I've got a a book coming out with the University of North Carolina Press in April of 2024. It's called On the Swamp fighting for indigenous environmental justice. And so on the swamp is a Lumbee colloquialism that just means in the neighborhood or, or around the community. And so the book is uh, an exposition of some of the environmental threats to Lumbees and to our indigenous neighbors and responses to those threats by our own communities, uh, by outside actors, and what it means for promoting justice and promoting indigenous rights for us and for native peoples all over the region. And so I'm really excited that that's going to be out in the world soon. Yeah, that's so exciting. Sounds like a super interesting book. I definitely want to check it out once it comes out. And you said it's going to be called On the Swamp, Fighting for Indigenous Environmental Justice. Did I get that right? That's correct. Yep. And it's already available on bookshop.org for pre-order. Bookshop.org. Okay, so Ryan, we have Ryan's book, um, which we're very excited for. And Seth, do you have any resources that, that you'd want to recommend for someone wanting to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you can't really go wrong starting the work of Joe Watkins, uh, who's a Choctaw citizen from Oklahoma and um, one of the founding figures, I would say, of indigenous archaeology. And so actually, he's appeared on A Life in Ruins, right, which is part of the archaeological or the Archaeology mm-hmm. Podcast Network. And uh, yeah, his conversation with Carlton uh, Grover was incredible. And Carlton, uh, who's at Indiana University in Bloomington now, uh, he's a citizen of the Pawnee Nation and he does you know, incredible work himself. Yeah, so he and those guys, Carlton and those guys over at Life and Ruins are hilarious. And that's a great show generally. Pretty much anything by, written by Sonia Adelaide is good, you know, especially her writing on uh, community-based work. She's got a, a book from... I believe 2012, 2011, 2012, something like that, uh, community-based archaeology. And Larry Zimmerman, Chip Caldwell have done some great work uh, as far as books and publications. 
And uh, yeah, generally podcasts can be a great resource. Um, so you can find some good ones that deal with this stuff. I already mentioned the Life in Ruins, but there's also uh, the Tribal Research Specialist podcast, which Ryan has appeared on. And then uh, last but not least, Dr. David Wilkins's work. Uh, David, he's a Lumbee citizen and specializes in political science and, and native politics and governance. Um, and he did his master's with Vondaloria Jr. at University of Arizona. And those two went on to co-author some some uh, great works together on on, on uh, you know native political science and governance. So those are uh, some some plugs and, and kind of uh, additional resources that I wanted to you know present. Well, I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for for taking the time and coming on, but also for the the really important work that you're doing, you know, across so many things, you know, not just educating students, but also you know the work fighting for your communities and advocating for what they'd like to see. And it's, it's just really inspiring. So thank you so much for both of you for coming on and sharing and showing that this work can be done across a lot of different disciplines. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation, Jessica. And Seth has been great to sit with you virtually this morning. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. I'll echo that. Thank you, Jessica, for the opportunity. And Ryan, it's always great to, to chat with you. Hopefully I can see you in person again soon. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.